Ellen White says, the principle of God's kingdom is the principle Satan hates. Its very existence, he denies. And the more I think about that quotation, the more it just blows my mind. Like Satan's argument from the very beginning was that God himself is selfish. Postmodern and post-Christian are both terms that the church seriously needs to retire. We're going to the world to tell them who we are, and we're not going to the world to present who God is. The world in which so much is focused on building walls and keeping people out. An alternative way to live is to live by... It's almost like raising a white flag and saying, ah, it's all the secular people's fault and no one's listening or coming to our evangelistic How can we redesign Adventism to be effective at reaching emerging Western culture? That's what the Story Church podcast is all about. Adventism redesigned. We always live out our theology. We may say we believe that God is a God of love, but if I, in my core, believe that God is a judgmental, angry God who demands perfection, I'm going to live that out in my prayer life. I'm not going to want to turn to him when I've messed up. Um, Our theology will always be lived out in the way that we love God and the way that we love others. And that's why theology is everything. It's so important that we get a correct picture of the character of God, because only by love is love awakened. The more I see God as a God of love, the more that I want to love him in response. Ellen White says, unselfishness, the principle of God's kingdom, is the principle Satan hates. Its very existence, he denies. And the more I think about that quotation, the more it just blows my mind. Like Satan's argument from the very beginning was that God himself is selfish. There's no such thing as unselfishness in the entire universe. Therefore, you can argue, hey, there's nothing wrong with me wanting to take the best for myself because God himself is doing it on the throne. And the angels were thrown into a theological quandary. Is God selfish or unselfish? When Jesus says, I am the head of the angel army, and Lucifer says, no, I want to be the head of the angel army. Is Jesus being selfish by saying, sorry, this is my spot and you don't get it? Or is Jesus being unselfish when he says, no, this is my spot and you can't have it? Everything is about the character of God. And this is where the Trinity is so important. I know some people will argue about whether you use the word Trinity, word Godhead. Um, Is that from the Catholic Church? Even from my conservative world, I'm used to people saying, can we use the word Trinity? So I I prefer to use the word Godhead, just not to offend anybody, but it's three. It's three in one. And um, I'm a person who thinks in pictures, Like when I'm struggling with something, I put it into a word picture and that's how I process it. And so for understanding the Godhead, I put it into a braid. Like I like to make challah bread where, you know, you braid the the dough together. So, you know, with my kids, when they were little, they loved to do this with me. We'd roll out three strips of bread, you know, make these long, um, this long line of dough, three of them, and then we braid them together and then let them rise, bake them. And by the end of that, the three are one. And this is the illustration that struck me about the Godhead, that the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit 
each come together. Now, some people who are listening may have a, a difficult time understanding braiding. If, you, if you've never braided anything, you may not understand, but um, the braid comes together because each strand goes to the middle and goes down to push the other ones up. So when you have the father go down in the middle and push the, the son and the Holy Spirit higher, then next the son will go down push the Holy Spirit and the Father higher. The Holy Spirit goes down to push the Father and the Son higher. This is how braiding works. If it's hard to understand the illustration, feel free to go look up a tutorial on how to braid. Um, and you can braid the other way. That's, that's an interesting point because um, if you braid so that the middle strand goes up on top of the others, that's basically how Lucifer argued that the universe ran. God himself exalts himself by pushing everybody else down, keeping us all down in our places, subservient to him. But the truth of the Trinity of the Godhead is that each one goes to the lowest place to push the others up. So if the father is the most powerful one in the universe, as some would argue, he takes to give as mm. steps to Christ says, as desire of ages says, he goes to the lowest place to push the others up. And the reason why God is safe to rule the universe is because he is entirely emptied of the thirst for self-exaltation. There's nothing in God that wants to keep the throne in order to keep the highest place for himself. The throne of the universe is the lowest place. And God always only ever uses his power to lift us up. He will always only ever do what is best for the rest of the universe, never for himself. Yeah. And the whole the whole of heaven lived like, like this up until Lucifer said, hey, I've got a different idea. That's you know, right. if they saw the biggest, juiciest mango on the mango tree, the angels would just grab it and go, wow, who can I give this to? They didn't grab it and go, yes, I got to get this before anybody else. We can't even really comprehend this as sinners. Because we've always tried to get the best for ourselves, but nobody in heaven had ever thought of doing that. And when Satan suggested that, and you read the beginning of Patriarchs and Prophets, this is clear. When Satan suggested, hey, I think God is trying to keep the best for himself. You know, he was so artful, so manipulative, but the angels were genuinely astounded that there was even a law of self-sacrifice because they'd never thought of it. They just loved, everybody loved. The whole universe was full of love and nobody had ever thought of exalting self. It just had never occurred to them because their theology was great. They saw God emptying himself, taking the form of a servant. Now, that, that is just, huh, let me come a little closer. I just realized I'm far away from my microphone. Um, that is just, <laughs> such a rich beautiful picture of god i mean like this is and this is what the heart of adventism has always been about right like this the, the true understanding of god's character of selfless self-emptying love and what you've just described there you know the throne of the universe the throne of god is the lowest place right it's not the not the highest um. in, in 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 like sort of like an emperor or a caesar who's at the top and everybody comes and serves them. And, you know, it's, it's, it's at the lowest place. And it's interesting because when you, when you think of Jesus and the kingdom that he proclaimed, it was, it was upside down. It was like, if you want to be the first, you need to be the last and the greatest among you will be your servant. 
you know, Jesus is describing yeah. how God works in, in, in that language, right? He's saying like, to be in my father's kingdom it, it's, it is to be like my father, is to be like me, is to be like God, right? And, and how does God function? He, well, he doesn't seek the highest place. He seeks the lowest. And this is so clearly reflected in the life of Jesus who thought it, you know, even though he was equal with God you know, and thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but, but made himself of no reputation. And he took on the form of a servant and not just a servant, but like death on the cross servant, you know, like this is like the, yes. the, the lowest of the low that you can possibly go. And you see this in when he washed his disciples' feet, all of these are reflections of God's character. And, and I guess here's the point that that you 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 articulate so brilliantly is that headship theology does the opposite of this it does not picture god this way so how does it picture him well headship theology teaches that the person who is in charge the person with the most power has the has the right to call the shots you know so the way that's logically applied for many people in patriarchal cultures and families and even in churches and other systems, you know, the person who has the most power does what they want. The CEO gets the highest salary, gets the most privileges and doesn't have to serve. We admire CEOs who decide I'm going to live on sacrificial wages and put the rest into all of my employees, but we don't consider that to be the norm. We're like, wow, that's unique. But this is the way the, the law of the kingdom always ran, that God, whoever has the most power, has the most obligation to serve. So the father gives everything. Once you see this, you can't unsee it. It's everywhere. The whole Bible is packed with this theology. Jesus, from the manger to the cross, takes the lowest place. Mm. And even in the Old Testament, God is continually trying to get them to realize, hey, you guys can't charge around trampling other nations you're called to take the message of my love to them your position as the the head of the nations if you will is to serve all of them a a deep rich helping of the gospel to show them my love and yes they they have to show that his love is a mix of justice and mercy sometimes they've got to go into a, a culture that's trampling on their children and their women look at what's happening in sodom you know you know these people are treating their children and their wives at home horribly if they're out roaming the streets looking for a stranger to rape. Mm. What a horrific system there is. And yet God can't get a break in the Old Testament because people hate how he's, he's just engaging in genocide. No, he's not. Look at Jericho. These people are given every opportunity. They've heard about what happened at the Red Sea. They've you know, Rahab says, our hearts are melting with fear. We know all about these things. And they've watched Israel walk across the Jordan on dry land. Then Israel walks around their city once a day for seven days. I mean, Jericho is only a few acres. You can walk around it in 15 minutes, probably. Mm. So here are these people struggling with, do we want to flee over the wall? Because we know all they have to do is throw a rope over the wall and they've got 23 hours in the day. They can hop over the wall and escape. The only people who God destroys in Jericho are those who steadfastly said, we'd rather trust the wall than trust the God of the Hebrews. Mm. So God doesn't get a break. If people are 
murdering their children, offering them as burnt sacrifices to Molech, we're like, how can you let this stuff happen, God? Why don't you strike those people down? And God says, I will, but I've got to bring my people into it so that they learn to hate evil. Hmm. Or if God does it, does do something about it, and we're like, how can you endorse genocide? God just can't win. And the real truth that we need to understand is that God always uses power to deliver. He never uses power to crush people down. If you look deep enough throughout scripture, this theme is everywhere. Why did God tell Israel not to have a king? You know, some people have argued for the third way in their approach to women's ordination that, you know, this is kind of like to give us a king. God will allow us to put women into these positions. But I see the approach the church is taking right now as the true give us a king. We're embracing a wrong system of thinking by taking a position that um, it, it is implied. You know, think of it in the, the ancient Israelite context, and then we can apply that to what we're dealing with. The ancient Israelites were saying, we want a king, and God's like, please don't do that. If you have somebody who you call a king, no matter how humble he starts out, everything in sinful nature is going to make him be tempted to exalt himself he's going to be tempted to take the best foods for himself the best wives for himself the best comforts have the best clothes because giving him the title of king is going to give every temptation possible to him to exalt himself don't do it guys don't do the king thing please israel's like no 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 we want to do this and god says okay fine i'll pick the person who is the humblest around so that he's got at least a shot at not using the throne in the wrong way. But Saul buys into headship theology. He's like, man, I have the most power. I'll use it to exalt myself and ends up destroying his life. David comes along again, the humblest guy around, and God allows him to go through extra suffering for years to be sure he's stripped of his thirst for power. But once he becomes a king, it all goes away, and he uses his power to assault Bathsheba and murder Uriah. Um, he, he repents, sure, but it was the way that they thought about kingship. In other words, headship theology, that was the thing that ruined Israel, because the way that they said, give us a king, was uh, it was a whole way of seeing patriarchal headship theology as, yeah, we can we can do this. Don't worry. We'll be able to handle the, the power. No, you can't. Look what happens to Solomon. Look what happens from there on. It was headship theology that led to, say, giving us a, a king. And then that ruined everything. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And this is, well, I don't know if I want to jump into that yet, because I like it's, it, it's, it's going to come there. But I, I was going to say that in the church today, we have framed the role of the pastor in, in many ways as a role vested with power, right? With a sort of kingship, with a sort of authority. Yes. And so, <clears throat> you know, if we think of only, only, only males can have power, you know, and this is mm -hmm. a role that's vested with power, therefore women can't have it because only a man's allowed to have that power. Like, that that entire way of thinking is what you're saying. It's it's you know like you you can almost bypass the entire debate by saying, look, 
we're, it's it's not like men versus women, you know, who's allowed to be in charge, who's not. It's like it's the whole paradigm of power. It's the it's the whole paradigm of like who's at the top of the hierarchy. That's not the character of God. That's not the way he works. That's not the way he designed the universe to work. That's not the way his character works. And so what you see in headship theology is is you you lose that picture, that braid that you described, right? Where each member of the Godhead constantly seeks the lowest position to elevate the other. You know, this is a reciprocal relationship where they're each seeking the lowest position to elevate the other, and that this is how the character of God is one. You know, this is how it this is how it operates. And then he designs the universe to be a reflection and rearticulation of that character of selflessness. I mean, this is, as you mentioned in your paper, this is why God is the only one who can be trusted to run the universe because this is his character, right? He's, he's yeah. not selfish. He's, he's not looking to be at the top, at the heap, at the apex. He's not searching for, for you know, that, that sort of like how we frame um, authority or tyranny or power or, or control it's he doesn't have a thirst for that and so yes and as Adventists, we, how, can we, how can we as Adventists have fallen for this lie of headship theology when we have the spirit of prophecy we have the law of self-renouncing love is the law of life for earth and heaven like the whole law of the kingdom is the seeking of the lowest place everything in the law of God is about how do you use power the more power you have, the more you're obligated to serve. So when the angels were seeing Jesus as the leader of the angel army, they're not seeing him as the guy that says, you guys have got to all praise me. They're seeing him as the one who serves them all. This is how the Trinity um, rightly understood is so powerful in showing the character of God. The angels originally it appears in the patriarchs and prophets, they didn't even realize that Jesus was their creator. They had three different visions of God. They had, and 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 I, I would propose that we need three visions of the character of God in order to truly love him and fear him the way that we should. They could see the father is on the throne, dwells in light unapproachable. They needed to know their creator that way to know that God has authority. When he says to do something, you don't quibble with him. They needed that picture of the character of God. And I think as uh, Christians in general right now, we've really lost that vision of the authority of God. We like to go, well, God loves me. He accepts me the way I am. So I'm not totally surrendering everything. You know, I'm able to hold on to this relationship or this addiction, but God loves me just the way I am. God is a jealous God. And we need a vision of the authority of God, the God who dwells in light unapproachable on the throne. So the angels had that. They knew you don't argue with God. You don't mess with God. He rules the universe from a throne of self-sacrificing love. And he is the fountain of all light and glory and blessing. Mm -hmm. But they also needed to know there is a God who is with you in every place. If you go to the farthest corner of the universe, God is with you there. And that's the Holy Spirit. They needed to know you cannot hide. If you are out of sight of the throne of the universe, it doesn't mean you're away from God. So they needed to know God as a God who is everywhere with them. But then what's missing there? 
it's a God who sits down and eats a picnic with them. And that's what Jesus was. And it seems in the patriarchs and prophets, it seems that they don't even know that this guy who sits down and munches mangoes and goes swimming with them in the water of life, they don't know that he made them, that he's over them, that he's so much more powerful. And that's part of where Lucifer gets off. You know, he gets derailed because he and Jesus are apparently two archangels that um, stand by the throne of God. They're the two leaders of the angel army. And then Lucifer gets this mysterious feeling one day as he sees Jesus being able to go talk to the father, going into the light unapproachable. And he's like, how come I don't get to do that? Mm -hmm. This was a foreign feeling. Nobody in the universe had ever thought that way before. It was a new thought. And that's how evil was born. The moment that Lucifer engaged in doubt about the character of God and went, I'm not so sure that he's really serving us. I think Jesus is trying to take a higher place than me. The moment he engaged in that, he simultaneously engaged in pride and unbelief and pride are the cycle of sin at the heart of all sin in the universe. He says, I think if I ran the universe, according to my own rules, I'd do it better than God. Hmm. So unbelief and pride are a cycle that happened the moment that Lucifer said, I'm not sure about Jesus being so self-sacrificing. And then apparently the father called together all the angels, revealed to them more fully the character of Jesus, and they bowed and worshiped him and praised him. It sounds like they hadn't been worshiping him, at least not the way we understand. They obviously submitted his authority, but it seems that they didn't realize that he was literally had been there for all of eternity and had made them hmm. up until that point. So this is the vision of the character of God we need, a God who has all the authority, all the power in the universe at his fingertips, but uses it all to serve. Yeah. He creates and, and, and us I think that's, that's and is powerful. with us yeah. everywhere. And, and I think that's super powerful because it's one thing for someone to not have power and not and obviously not be able to use it that that you would call that maybe someone who's who's harmless right but someone who right. has power means they have the capacity to use it for self but they never do that's not a harmless <laughs> being that's just what do you call that i don't even know like right that's just like you know yeah <laughs> you know like a rabbit and, is and harmless, is right like a rabbit over. can't hurt anything you know but like <laughs> But yeah. a lion that chooses not to eat, you know, the animals in the savanna and, and to be their friend, like that's something else. And and I think that's what you see in God, like is, is this authority and power. And I mean, you know, mountains trembling, you know, all this. And and yet he chooses to lay himself down. And yeah, yeah, it's just incredible. And and this is the thing. I just want to make this really clear in case anyone um is is maybe struggling to see the difference between what we're talking about here in headship theology. Headship theology doesn't view God this way. It doesn't view God as this basically mutual submission between the Father, Son, and Spirit, where they're each seeking to serve the other. Headship theology kind of it has is a hierarchy. It has God at the top and Jesus. And I'm going to introduce a term here that is, is a theological term, but it's important to understand. Jesus is eternally subordinated to the father. Yes. Meaning that the very way that the Trinity itself is designed, 
is that Jesus is eternally submissive to the Father, and then the Holy Spirit is eternally submissive to them both. And so there's a sort of like a hierarchy of authority or hierarchy of power. Father is at the top. Yeah. He's got all the power. The son is at the bottom. He doesn't question the father. He's eternally subordinated. Whatever you say, father, that's what I'll do. Holy Spirit does the same thing. Mm -hmm. And so what you have in this relationship, then this eternal subordination of the son, as it's called, is you have a, a, a sort of blueprint or a sort of paradigm that headship theology says when God created human beings, he created us with that pattern. He created us so that some of us would be at the top and others would be eternally submissive or subordinated to those at the top. How does it work out? Well, it works out that men are the ones at the top <laughs> and women are the ones who are eternally subordinated to men and, and, and so on and so forth. So it literally flips the script on God. It presents a God uh, that is defined by authority and power and control. And then it says human relationships are patterned after that. Just as Malaska said, right? We always do, right? We always live out the theology that we believe. Um, and so yeah. this, is, this is the tension here. This is the framework because Adventism has always, you, you find in the writings of Ellen White, you find it in our, mm -hmm. the development of our historical thought, our systematic theology, the character of God, selfless love, the law of self-renouncing love, you know, uh, oneness in the universe, relational oneness. I'm not trying to sound like, you know, new age here, but it's sort of relational oneness, you know, at the end of the great controversy, everything, you know, vast creation, one pulse of harmony, you know, God is love, like this sense of humility and compassion and 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 servanthood really servanthood is at the core of how god as a trinity functions and this is that's lost. it that's it is lost in hedge yeah, theology the core, it's completely obliterated the core of the universe the backbone of christianity of the gospel is that we can trust god because he will always only ever use his power in loving sacrificial ways this is why the universe is safe. If that's not true, the entire universe is run by selfishness and there is nothing safe. Um, it, it, this, that's the most terrifying thought possible. But if it's true, if the gospel is true, and if God himself always only ever uses his power in self-sacrificing ways, we're safe. If the universe's core is a pecking order where the father is top dog, and the son goes underneath him and does whatever the father tells him to do. Um, I know how some people can see that in scripture and in sincerity, but that theology is going to be borne out in the way that we treat one another, that we will arrange ourselves into little pecking orders. And the father in the family will be able to tell his children what to do, and they have no choice but to do it, okay, there, there is a point where toddlers need to learn, you know, that children have to learn to obey before they learn to reason, Ellen White says. And I'm totally for that. But my job as a parent is to raise my children up to be an authority equal to me and ultimately to go higher than me. I want them to become better than I am, to know more of the character of God than I do. If Jesus... Absolutely wasn't just submission because i do believe jesus was in submission to his father during his time on earth he was modeling to us this is how you submit to god this is how you live a, a life of constant prayer and every day the father shows you what to do this is how you do it that's great 
he was in that time of his existence uh, modeling to us this is how you submit to god however if eternal subordination is true why did jesus die for us Mm. wouldn't it be because his father told him to it was his father's will that's right where does that lead us theologically did jesus die out of love for us or did he even have a choice if he as the god of the universe was in submission to his father who is the higher god of the universe and the father told him this is what you have to do then jesus at best dies out of submission to his father out of love Mm. for his father at worst he just dies because this is the pecking order of the universe. You can't argue with it. Mm-hmm. it, it it's such is, a misrepresentation of his yeah. love. Yeah. And, and I actually found that to be one of the strongest points in, in your paper in, in, this particular, in, uh, in this particular topic where you write, and I quote, if, etern- if eternally subordinated, Jesus would have had no option except to obey unquestioningly. This would hardly make Jesus' death the expression of his great love for mankind, end quote. Um, and I just thought like, fool, man, <laughs> so much yeah, of it, the it's, truth about it's God's such a misrepresentation obliterated. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I love I love seeing how correct theology shows us a God who just is entirely self emptying. I guess mm. I can never get enough of that. Wow. This is why I can trust him with my life, because I know if he's not using his power to interfere here. It's only because of love somehow. Mm. And this is where if a father is the head of his home, the way that Christ is the head of the church, his children can trust. If dad says no, it's because it's what's best for us. So instead, we've got this patriarchal mentality where the dad decides we're going to go here for vacation. We're going to buy this house. I'm going to do what I've decided to do. And the wife and children have to submit under him and go, okay, well, can we, can we put in some, some suggestions for what we'd like to do? And he'll evaluate them and decide, well, okay, I think I'll do this. But what we see over and over in patriarchal families is that it is just like saying, give us a king. It puts mm-hmm. so much temptation on the person who has the most power to believe that they can do what they want to do. Why not go sit on the couch? instead of coming to help in the kitchen, because that's kind of a lower place. And I've worked hard. I have a right, you know, everything is about entitlement in, in the, in the world of sin. What do I deserve? What can I get out of it? Mm. And entitled people are rarely going to choose voluntarily to live in service. What white slave owner went out there and picked cotton in the fields alongside the slaves because we're all in this together guys in fact i'll take the hardest i'll take the hardest area i'll work harder than any of you let's all do this together guys let me give you the best food that i can i'm going to make sure that my house is the worst one in the community give you guys the best housing the best food what kind of slave owner did that they didn't that's because they believe they were entitled to power and Patriarchal thinking, headship theology tempts those who believe they're entitled to positions of higher authority. It tempts them to sin. And then it tempts those underneath them in their theology to sin. Then the wife is going to manipulatively slam things around when she doesn't get her way or 
you know, squirrel away some money so that she can do what she wants sometimes too. It, it just tempts. The whole mm. thing is a temptation. Yeah. The father who uses power wrongly tempts the mother to use power wrongly, which tempts the children to use power wrongly. Whereas if we have a biblical understanding of the head of the home, and this is what I've woven into my books, The Tales of the Exodus. Mm. When we have a biblical understanding, the father is the one most obligated to serve because he has the most power. Most of the time, physically, as well as socially and financially, men have more power than women. And that means men, wherever they have more power, are the most obligated to serve. I use the illustration in one of my books of how if a flood came, the father would be the one who would stand at the bottom of the big tree, pushing the mother and children up into the tree. Why? Because he has the most power. So he's the most obligated to serve, to help all the others first, rather than exalting himself. This is what a biblical sense of being the head of the home would look like. The more power I have, the more I'm obligated to serve. And and we're going to, we're going to do um, uh, a particular, uh, just a little bit further on where we, where we look at the chapter where you talk about headship theology and marriage and just how those pieces interlace uh, and, and really just unpack it a little bit more. Uh, because as you're saying, when we have a proper understanding, you know, what, what does the Bible mean by submission? What does the Bible mean by headship? And, and I think this is one of the things I love that you say, like, if headship is a biblical idea, then the, what, do, do, how, how do I frame this without like completely butchering how brilliantly you stated it? But essentially, if it is in the Bible, it would be headship would be the opposite of what we think it is. It would be a position. You would be at the head of serving, not at the head of being served, right? Like, <laughs> so it, it would right. be the opposite of how we frame it. And I just want to read two two statements here from this first chapter as well that I just thought was was absolutely incredible. Uh, here you say, could it be that the power pyramid at the heart of the universe is inverted, so that the highest position in the universe is actually the seeking? Of the lowest place. And then later on, you write, could the secret of the father's powerful position of headship over the universe be that he seeks the very lowest place? If so, he is safe because he is entirely empty of any thirst for power and therefore is the fountain of unselfish love for the universe. And I'm just like, man, you know, like this, this idea is just completely obliterated. It's lost within headship theology. And, and, and let me just make a, a very quick point here because I don't want to go down into this rabbit hole too long uh, only because it's not really the main focus of our, of our series. Um, but I do want to briefly mention it because I think it's important. Headship theology originates within certain pockets of Calvinist fundamentalist theology. And for those of you who are unaware or unfamiliar with those terms, there is a podcast series that I did some time ago. Um, I think it's called Adventism for a Post-Church Generation. We're actually going into a lot of detail on that. So you can go back and hear those and understand it more. I'm just going to go really brief here. But the bottom line is this. Calvinist fundamentalist theology is Kind of, by, kind of like as far from Adventist theology as you can get. In Calvinist theology, <laughs> yes. 
the picture of God is fundamentally about power, right? God mm-hmm. is framed within the construct of sovereignty. Everything is about his power. So much so that in Calvinist theology, um, some of the common teachings in Calvinist theology, uh, number one, God predestines everything that happens, including who goes to heaven and who goes to hell. Why? Because the only will that matters in the universe is his, so there's no free will. So if you have a picture of God like that, then it's not too difficult to jump from that and say the way that Godhead functions with this paradigm of sovereignty and power is that the father is at the very top. The son then is eternally submissive to the father and the Holy Spirit eternally submissive to them both. And so when God creates humanity, he designs society that same with that same hierarchical structure where you have a sovereign at the top, a subject at the bottom, and then more subjects underneath and so on and so forth, right? This mm-hmm. makes sense within a Calvinist system of thought. It doesn't make sense in an Adventist one because Adventist right. theology is historically, what could be historically termed as Arminian theology. Arminianism began as a revolt against Calvinism, right? It was yes. like, wait a minute. I, John Wesley, even though he wasn't the originator of Arminianism, but John Wesley would look at Calvinist theology and say, this is a description of Satan, not God. You know? Yes. He, he found it disturbing. He found it completely unjust. And so within the Arminian world, within Arminian thought, the beginning place is God is a God of love, not power, not sovereignty, love. We understand his power and his sovereignty through his love. And so yes. I remember in a conversation with um, Calvinist that I was listening to, um, an Arminian and a Calvinist were sort of chatting with each other and the Arminian asked him, so what do you do with the love of God? Because in your theology, God can't really love because people are just kind of like robots. He just creates them to do whatever he scripts them to do in order to glorify himself. And so if a person says to God, I love you, does, does that even affect God? Like, does he, it, does it make him happy? Does it, and the Calvinist, I have to give him credit for being very consistent with his own worldview, but he literally said in this debate, he literally said to the Arminian, God gets absolutely nothing out of you telling him, I love you. It does nothing wow. for him. And it does nothing to him because God cannot be impacted. He cannot be touched. He's too, he's too, you know, transcendent. And every single one of us, we're just, we're, we're just playing out the script that he wrote. And our only role in that script is to submit and that's it and stop asking questions, you know? And so I'm like, wow. I mean, like I gave him credit for at least there's different levels of Calvinism. Some are more intense than others, but I gave him credit for at least being consistent with his own worldview. And I guess, let me let me land that plane now because I don't want to go down that rabbit hole too long. But I guess what I'm trying to say is if you're a Seventh-day Adventist, if you're listening to the Seventh-day Adventist and, and you're struggling with headship theology, what, I, what I'm trying to say is headship theology fits very neatly within a Calvinist system of thought. And that's where it originated. It originated, not all Calvinists believe in headship theology, but it originated within certain pockets of Calvinist fundamentalist theology. Um, and then it just kind of snuck into Adventism. And right. it made its way in, and most people just embraced it without any critical thought, without, a, without realizing, actually, 
this contradicts literally all the pillars of how we understand God and his character and his love and his yes. compassion and what Jesus came to reveal and what the sanctuary represents and what the law is, a transcript of God's character of unselfish love it's reflected in the law, right? Like it literally contradicts all of it. And it's like, if this thing is allowed to just have free reign in our churches, it strangles our, our mission even if we're still doing evangelism, even if we're still baptizing people, we're not accomplishing our mission because our mission is to reveal to the world the truth about God's character of love. And we're no longer doing that. If this paradigm yes. is something that we allow to frame our theological discourse. Anyways, um, just want to throw that in there, you know, and, and I, I guess the plane has landed now. Anyone who's interested in Calvinism <laughs> and Arminianism, go check out that. Other <laughs> I told you about where yes, I love what you're saying. Essentially, Samuel Bakayoki brought in headship theology. That's the first place that we see this present uh, form of headship theology within Adventism. Bakayoki started writing it. Sam Pippum took it up. We know some of the issues that enables and encourages a sinful approach to, to picturing the character of God um, and to family life and to church life. The moment that somebody says to me, well, we can't have women being ordained. Look at these women trying to uh, claw their way up into positions of power that belong only to men. I know the issue here is there's a root going on here of wrong theology that ordination would even be a position of power over others. Mm. Um, if, if we had a correct theology, we'd be saying, why are these women wanting to get to the lowest place to serve in ways that only men should lower themselves that low? Mm. Women shouldn't have to go that low. And yet that's not the way the debate has been framed because we've bought into headship theology that says I ought to get to the highest place. And that is fundamentally give us a king. It is an unbiblical approach to power that God condemns in the strongest terms by Jesus, the way that Jesus came. Look what headship theology did to Jesus' ministry. He takes 12 disciples. He ordains them. He says, guys, I have chosen you to lead the new movement. And they're like, awesome. We get the 12 thrones. We get to be top dogs in this new movement. Now all we have to fight about is who gets the right and left hand of Jesus. And Jesus is like, no, guys, my kingdom is not like that. That's not how it works. And they spend three and a half years, the best privilege, arguably, that anybody ever had, three and a half years walking and talking with Jesus. But the whole thing is spoiled by headship theology. They're still arguing because they think ordination set them aside for the highest place. And on the way to Jerusalem, they're still, <clears throat> they're still walking a little farther behind Jesus. He's on his way to the cross. And they don't want to walk with him because they know he's going to rebuke them when he hears them talking about, yet again, their favorite topic. Who's going to get the top places in the new kingdom? This ruined their opportunity to walk with Jesus on the way to Jerusalem, that final trip. This ruined their three and a half years with him because they were still buying into the, we want power over the Romans. We want to be the guys who sit at the right and left hand in the new kingdom. Because they misunderstood ordination and they thought it set them aside for the highest place, they disqualified themselves. And it was only when they went through the cross, the crucifixion, watching Jesus die to go to the very lowest place 
that they kind of finally went, wow, I guess this kingdom isn't going to give us power like we wanted. And only then were they ready for Jesus to come back and talk to them and say, hey, guys, it's all about loving God and loving your neighbor as yourself. Then they have the Acts 1 experience where they make things right with each other, where nobody's trying to get the top place anymore. And then they're ready for the Acts 2 experience where the Holy Spirit's poured out. And this is why headship theology is such a destructive idea that we must get rid of. Ellen White said, our theology needs to be continually evolving as we grow closer and closer to God. We understand his love more. This is central because if we want to have the Holy Spirit poured out in the latter rain, we've got to take the steps that the disciples did to re- to have the early rain. Absolutely. We have to let go of our headship theology, our desire to have the top places and realize instead we're going for the lowest places. Only then can we come into one accord the way the disciples did. And then this doesn't even get into how headship theology affects how we handle conflict. Mm. But suffice it to say, until we are coming into one accord, we aren't going to be ready for the latter rain. And headship theology has everything to do with why we're not coming into one accord. Absolutely, man. Oh, you just gave me chills. That whole everything you just said. <laughs> you know, it's it's really interesting because as you were sharing, I, I couldn't help but think of James and John, whose mother actually went to Jesus. If I remember the story correctly, I'm pretty sure it was James and John. Mother goes to yeah. Jesus and specifically mm-hmm. asks Jesus, when you come into your kingdom, can you please have my sons, James and John? One sit on the one on your right hand and the other on your left. Even she got in <laughs> on the on the debate yeah. of who who's gonna be the closest, right? And the well, because that's what it. they were preaching. Yeah, that's what the synagogues were full of. This is why the Pharisees rejected Jesus when he came in a manger in Bethlehem and shepherds announced him. They're like, uh-uh, that is a counterfeit kingdom because our king will come with power and glory. Our our king will crush the Romans. And it was headship theology that made them reject the savior of the world. Yeah. And and the the, the really mind-blowing thing, and you know, I'd actually never seen this before. I'm only realizing it now as we're having this conversation. Jesus' response to John and James' mother, his response is, you have no idea what you're asking for. Mm -hmm. Because what does it mean to be at the right hand and the left hand of Jesus? It meant to be crucified with him. Yeah, That's what it meant, right? To be at his mm-hmm. right hand and at his left when he comes in his glory means Jesus is in the middle on the cross, John is on the right, and then James is on the left, right? And for yeah. her, she thinks she thinks she's she's asking for that for a position of power. He's like, You you have no idea what you're actually asking for. It's the lowest position possible. Death on a cross. I mean, that's humiliating. That's insulting, yeah. you know, like nobody dies on a cross unless they're, you know, like a, a political prisoner of Rome. Like this was, they literally did this as psychological warfare to, to, to humiliate and shame their enemies. And it's like, that's, that's what you're asking for, you know? So, you know, when, when, yes. when we're saying like the position of power that she was looking for in Jesus kingdom for her sons doesn't exist. There's only positions yeah. of servanthood. There's only positions of self-abandonment. And this is a totally different world. This is a totally different 
paradigms. It's a totally different way of thinking. It's a totally different way of being. It's a totally different way of relating to the people around you. It's a metamorphosis of our entire relationship with reality is the upside down kingdom. This is what the gospel does, right? And when you have ideas yes. like headship theology, anchoring and calcifying themselves within our churches, um, you're destroying in many ways the, the, the very fabric that we've been called to, to give to the world. You know, there's, I just want to read one more, one more quote here from, um, from your paper. Um, the process of preparation for the Holy Spirit's outpouring, moving from seeking the highest place to humbly seeking the lowest place and humbly making things right with one another shows us that God can create an authentic community of people who no longer seek to establish themselves in a pecking order of positions. Yes. Wow. That's the goal. That's what makes us ready for the latter rain. And that's Absolutely. why this theology is so deadly. It Absolutely. strips away our ability to even walk in the footsteps of Jesus. Because the more power we have, the more we're tempted to use it selfishly. It's like communism. Why does communism not work? We all know, because of sin. Why does headship theology not work? Because of sin. Same song, second verse. <laughs> well said, man. Well said. And you know, and, and when I read this, my my nerdy missional sort of like eyes just light up because it's like this, you know, we talk about mission, you know, when I first got into like you're really passionate about mission. Um, especially like I do most of my work in Australia, post-church, very secular, mm -hmm. you know, most people here don't even know what a pastor is, you know, uh, extremely post-church, <laughs> extremely secular. And um, in the early days, I, I thought what everybody thinks. I thought, hey, the way you do post-church mission is you up the attractional ante, right? You got to have the mm -hmm. cool band, you got to have the cool pastor, you know, the tattoos and the skinny jeans and the, and the, you know, the aesthetically attractive room with the coffee bar out in the foyer. And, yes. You know, like, that's what I thought it took until I realized actually, you know, from, from now that I've been here for eight years and I've been interacting and, and studying the Bible and journeying with lots of different secular people and seekers that I've been connecting with over the years, that it doesn't actually matter how attractional you make your church service. The vast majority of post-church secular people, millennials and Zeds, they don't care. They don't care how cool your church service mm -hmm. is. They don't care how cool your pastor is. They don't care how awesome your band is. They are not looking for a church program. It, it's not right. in their radar. So like maybe somebody who left church and they were tired of it because it was boring and, you know, they felt like they walked into 1950 when everyone did. Maybe that would be like, oh, hey, this is cool. It's different. It's modern. But like bona fide <laughs> secular people really seriously they don't care, you know, like they're not looking for that. The very concept or the very idea of going to a building for a few hours to consume religious content is just weird. It doesn't matter how you frame it, you know? Um, yeah. And so I've been thinking really deeply, like, so what does it mean to do mission in this context? And like, what do you invest in? What do you pour your energy into when the thing that we've gotten so good at is something that they're just not looking for. And you just come right back to scripture, this community of people who love like no one else on earth. 
and yes. that when people look at you, like, I mean, like I was reading through the Bible, man, New Testament, like over 30 times, love one another, love one another, love one another. It's like, mm-hmm. and it's not just love one another in word. It's like live rhythms and patterns that actually demonstrate to the world that love. And what is the greatest rhythm and pattern that reveals love? Selflessness right? Yeah. Seeking the lowest position, serving one another. And I'm like, man, I'm like fully convinced if we can become a community of people who live this way, that that's how we will win our post-church cities. That's how the gospel will take root. Yeah. It's not the fancy life. And look, I, like I'm not very conservative, so I don't, ha- I don't actually mind, you know, like I like song and all that stuff. Like I, I don't have a problem with, with, I mean, I, I don't, I don't like their, you know, some of the social issues that are happening in that but i mean like the musical scandals the scandals are certainly right. terrible but I'm, I'm talking about the musical stuff it doesn't bother me right i'm not like a hymns only guy but what i'm saying is mm-hmm. that's not the key right when i read right. this when i read what you're saying here right that god can create an authentic community of people who no longer seek to establish themselves in a pecking order of positions i'm like man if that was a community that literally existed on the earth i would want to be a part of it and i know I know every secular person that I've ever like done life with in the last eight years that I've been in, you know, this extremely post-church continent, I know that they would look at that and they would think, what in the world is going on there? And yeah. something like Yeah, see, this is the thing. What what happened that made the gospel explode with 3,000 being converted in a day? Mm-hmm. It was not that Jesus was now gone, so now the Holy Spirit could be with them. That that wasn't it wasn't that. It was that for three and a half years, the disciples followed Jesus around arguing about pecking order because Mm. they didn't get how to love each other. This headship theology, their wrong understanding of what they'd been ordained for, stripped them of spiritual power. And when they got it straight after the cross, that was what turned everything around. And God said, now it's safe to give you the power of the Holy Spirit. Before you could heal people, you could preach, but now... Now everything will change because you love one another. Absolutely. Yes. Wow. So just do a quick summary here, because man, this has been some like mind-blowing stuff. So headship theology, doctrine of God, hierarchy, based on power, based on uh, you know, uh pecking order, essentially. Um, biblical vision, biblical vision of God and the Godhead, exact opposite servanthood seeking the lowest place this is the adventist vision of god that we've you know in fact headship theology literally teaches a picture of god the very picture of god that ellen white claims satan constructed yes right that's that it. he wants the world to believe he's coercive that he wants the world to believe he's in it for himself that he that he's just power hungry that this is literally the the propaganda that satan engineered and it's there in headship theology and somehow we're just like blindly you know because of some political ideology or social ideology or whatever we're just blindly being like all right i'm gonna like just uh, like latch on to that like you know and it's really sad <laughs> because actually you know you mentioned bakioki earlier bakioki didn't seek to be secretive about it he was very right. upfront he straight up said I don't want women to be ordained to ministry. I don't mm-hmm. agree with it. And he literally said, there is no theological paradigm in Adventism 
that I could use to deny the ordination of women, but I am going to find yes. one. I'm going to yes. look far and wide and I'm going to find one. And where did he go? He went to the Calvinists, the literal opposite yes. of Adventists. And there he <laughs> found the paradigm. He brought it into Adventism and people were just like, yeah, we like it. And it's like, really? Have we been reading our Bible? Yeah. Have we lost sight of like who we are and what we're all about? You know, anyways, that's kind of like more of a right. little bit of a rant, but <laughs> a meaningful no, no, rant. But, but this is everything. <laughs> it, it, it matches because what happened at the beginning of Adventism was that Adventists conformed to the culture as much as they could, but where the culture was trying to hold back their mission of taking the gospel to the world, they said, away with that, we're going to let women preach anyway. Um, and in a context where women were so restricted in literally everything they could do, um, Adventists were revolutionary in going to the forefront of, no, men can image God, women can image God, children can image God. All of us are called to take the gospel to the world. Hey guys, it's Pastor Marcus here. And before you go, I wanted to point out a few really cool things I think you might really like to know. The first one is if you go to the storychurchproject.com slash podcast and you see there at the very top the episodes that are being released for our newest part in our season saying no to headship theology, directly underneath that there is a button that you can click for extra resources related to this series. And trust me, you want to check them out. The first one is the very paper that I am quoting throughout this series titled The Lowest Place by Nicole Parker. You can download that free on my website. If you click that link or that button rather, it takes you to the link that has the PDF download. There's also another PDF that's absolutely essential to read. It's titled A Short History of the Headship Doctrine in the Seventh-day Adventist Church by Jerry uh, Chudlai, I think is how you pronounce his surname. I don't know. I probably could totally butchered that. But that is a super interesting paper, also worth reading. It talks about how this idea even crept into our church and where it originates from, and, and, and it's just incredible. You just got to check it out. There's also two more resources that I've added this week. The first one is a book by Ty Gibson. In fact, so is the second one, also a book by Ty Gibson. The first one is titled The Sonship of Christ. Christ, and the second one is titled The Heavenly Trio. Now, in this current episode, Nicole and I talked a lot about the Godhead and the relationship in the Godhead, and we didn't get to cover absolutely everything. There's a lot of different variables that relate to that question, that relate to the Trinity, that relate to the Sonship of Jesus, you know, uh, just, uh, I don't know, like mountains of questions. So, you know, obviously we didn't have the chance to explore every single one of those, but these two books are incredible. You guys. They go into so much detail. The Sonship of Christ is focused mostly on the Bible. What does the Bible mean by the Sonship of Christ? How are we supposed to interpret that? What picture of God emerges from that? What is God saying to us? And the second one goes into Adventist history, Ellen White. Absolutely incredible stuff. You can click those links and get those books directly from Amazon there as well. Uh, and finally, if you want to help make a difference, not just listen to this podcast series, but actually support the women in our church who have called have been called by God to, to spread the gospel, to lead our movement, to be pastors in our movement. Uh, Southern Adventist University has a new scholarship called the Scholarship for Women Preparing to Preach God's Word. And the link for that is also on that very same page that I just told you guys about. You can scroll to the bottom. You can click that link. You can donate 
to that scholarship. This is a really practical way to help the next generation, to help our sisters who are getting into ministry, removing obstacles that uh, are, are in the way, whether they be you know financial, economic, etc., uh, so that they can get into school and, and be able to get their, their degrees. So this is an incredible opportunity, again, just to do something practical. Of course, I can't close this podcast episode without once again inviting each of you who have not yet done it. Go to the storychurchproject.com slash store. Get yourself a copy of The Road, you guys. This is absolutely incredible. The reviews have been insane, not only from Adventists, but even from people who've never read a Bible before, never been to church before. I've had so many reviews from teenagers, from pastors, from parents, uh, from young adults in university. They are just absolutely loving the way that this book helps them understand God more. It explores the Bible through the lens of Adventist theology, particularly our 28 fundamental beliefs, but it does so in a way that's specifically designed to communicate this awesome story to unchurched people, particularly secular post-church cultures. And uh, But that's not the only people who are loving it. Lots of people from all over the place are loving it. So I'm telling you, you got to check it out. Get your hands on a copy. Uh, $21 on Amazon. And you can even, if you are at a church and you want to get them in bulk, there's options there as well for how you can order it in bulk for a discount. Just check it out. Just go to the storychurchproject.com slash store. Make sure you get yourself a copy of The Road. All right, next week, we're going to get into episode three. We're going to be talking about creation and the fall. How do we understand headship theology in terms of the fall of man? And doesn't the fall of man actually justify this sort of patriarchal headship structure? Isn't that what we see in Genesis? Nicole and I are going to get into that next week. You guys don't want to miss it out. Until then, make sure you go and get yourself a copy of The Road. All right, see you next week. (laughs) 